Ladies and gentlemen, good evening to you. Hello. Welcome. And if I could just have your attention, please, for the next 30 minutes or so. Good evening. A very warm welcome from me. I'm Genevieve Jacobs. At this point, I used to say I was from the ABC. Aww. Lots of you know how that one turned out. I am really delighted to be here for this evening's discussion at the National Library. And by the look of all of you at this sellout function, um, it seems that there might be something to this feminism business, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm actually delighted to see a lot of violet and green, beautiful colours. And I, I do actually have a fabulous green dress, like the Duchess of Cambridge, and that's where the similarity ends. I'm a bit partial to the diplomatic dressing, but I couldn't find it, and I thought, oh, what the heck? Bessie wouldn't mind me being a scarlet woman. <laughs> On the stage with me here, Dr Claire Wright, whom it's been my pleasure to interview a number of times. She's an award-winning historian, author and a public commentator with multiple degrees. She's currently an associate professor at La Trobe University and her specialist areas of interest include women's political activism, the gold rush period, 19th and 20th century women's history, democracy movements, mining history, bush rangers and the hotel industry, <laughs> where the ladies do come in. <laughs> Dr. Beatrice Bijon is with me. She's a scholar of English literature and women's history and a visiting fellow at the ANU. She's edited a number of books and she's the co-author of Suffragistes et Suffragettes, recently published in her native France. And she's the co-curator of this NLA collection, Deeds Not Words, the Bessie Rishbeef collection. Now, Bessie Rishbeef, not such a well-known name as it happens, but we will get to her in a moment. <coughs> this is, in fact, the 100th anniversary of 8 million women being granted the right to vote in the United Kingdom. So how they got there and how we Australians had already done so is a story that is rich in detail and remarkably, remarkably little known in modern-day Australia. So, Claire, I'm going to start with you. Many of us have perhaps heard the names of the Pankhursts, mother and daughters. We're vaguely aware of the story of the Holloway Prison hunger strikes and the force feeding and mm. Emily Butler who died under the, horses, uh, under the hooves of the King's Racehorse. But I want you to take us to June 17, 1911, mm. because it gives us an extraordinary sense of how big and dramatic and politically earth-shaking the movement for women's suffrage was. Tell us about that day. Okay, that, that day was an extraordinary day. Um, it was uh, the, the height of the British summer. And 1911 was the year that the British suffrage movement, the suffragettes and the suffragists, um, and can I just briefly explain the difference? Yes. Just so people do know, suffragettes was a term that was specifically used to, to describe the women who were members of the WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, that was um, run by Emmeline Pankhurst, and that uh, started in 1903. Suffragists is the term that is used, had been used for decades to describe women who advocated for the vote. So Australia had suffragists, but we never had suffragettes. And that term suffragette came about, it was used um, as a derogatory term by uh, a reporter in London 
to describe this new breed of, of woman who was a member of the WSPU who had a much more robust and direct style of action and petitioning and demonstration um, than, than the traditional advocates in England who had been members of Millicent Garrett Fawcett's NUW, N, National Union of... It's a longer one. Thank you. Um, and, uh, and he had used this term, suffragettes, and so those women decided to claim it and use it as a, as a term of power um, in a bit, a bit in the way that we use slut walk today to, to reclaim a word that has been used to, to, uh, as, as derogatory and to vilify women. They claimed it for their own. So sometimes it seems like it's a kind of... Um, uh, a piece of historical pedantry to make the difference between suffragettes and suffragists, but it is important and Australia didn't have suffragettes. But this was an incredible day, the 11th of, of June 1911, because it was the moment when all of the various suffrage groups came together to demonstrate the force of the movement and the fact that they really felt that 1911 was going to be the year where they finally would break through. So by this stage, it wasn't just the WSPU um, and the NUW, N, National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, NUWSS. There was also the Women's Freedom League, um, that it was an offshoot of the WSPU. So they also were militant suffragists, suffragettes, but they didn't call themselves suffragettes. They were militant suffragists. Um, and that was the union to which Muriel Matters belonged. Um, Dora Meeson Coates belonged, and a number of other Australians also had, had joined that. Now, all the groups came together to demonstrate the force of the movement in this very particular year, which was the, the year of the coronation of King George. And so the whole world had gathered in London to see the new king being coronated. There was also the imperial conference was being held, so the leaders of all of the um, Commonwealth, well, they weren't all nations at this stage, but um, imperial powers, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, were there for this imperial conference. So Andrew Fisher was in London, and, um, and there was a great show of force by the women's movement to so show that they were unified, they'd been fighting for years and years, particularly since, um, uh, in England since 1905, since the beginning of militant suffragists, and, and they came together. 40,000 women marched down the streets of London, and, to, and hundreds of thousands of people watched them do that. And it was also not just a big day for the British suffrage movement, but it was a big day, I argue, in my forthcoming book for the Australian suffrage movement, because there was a large Australian contingent there, and they marched behind several banners, but one of them was the women's suffrage banner that hangs in Parliament House. And if you haven't seen it, I urge you to go and see it. Um, quick Smart. It was painted by Dora Meeson Coates in 1908, and it's that banner that says, Commonwealth of Australia, trust the women mother as I have done. And it's an image of uh, uh, the daughter Australia pleading with Mother Britannia, in this classical allegory, pleading with her to follow Australia's lead and to enfranchise her women. And Andrew Fisher's wife, uh, Margaret Fisher also marched behind this. Vida Goldstein had been brought over, she, she's the leader of the Australian suffrage movement, had been brought over to England by um, 
Emmeline Pankhurst had invited her and she had been speaking for the WSPU and the, the Australian people in London rallied behind this and, and was really a very strong force um, and they, they marched very early in the parade to show the preeminence of Australia. So I think it's a really interesting, um, and why my book starts with that particular march, is because it's a really interesting part of Australian history that we've also lost, um, part of our own social memory of this time where Australia was a progressive force in the world and that we were known for our risk-taking, um, for being experimental, and for being the, the leaders of world democracy. And, and that was demonstrated in this particular march, and it was particularly symbolised by that banner. Beatrice, uh, Bessie Rishbeth was not, in fact, in London then. One no. of the things that's interesting about her is that she's part of a movement that stretches across right and left politically. It stretches across the classes. So there are tremendously wealthy women who are involved in this, and there are working women who are involved in this. Bessie got to London in 1913. Tell me who she was and what we know about how she became passionately interested, as she would be her whole life, in women's votes. So it's a very different story from what you're telling me. Bessie was in London in 1913, and she never became a suffragette or a suffragist. She never committed to the cause. She said an observer, was very happy to be an observer. And I think it was the result, probably, very different from Uriel Matters, who wanted to have a good fight. Um, <laughs> uh, Bessie, so she was born in South Australia, um, got married in South Australia, then went to Perth. And um, she became a member, as you were saying, the founder of the Women's Service Guild and became involved in um, campaigning for women's rights, the right of children, of infants, indigenous people. And... But I would say, in, uh, in, um, in, um, not in a militant way, it was more, um, yeah, it doesn't compare to what you, you were describing. So she happened to be in London in 1913. She was traveling with her husband, who was a wool merchant doing business there. And she saw you know, this crowd, these women taking to the streets all these women's bodies, because I think the element of the you know, bodies being there in the street, basically for the first time, taking to the street. And she was absolutely amazed by what she saw, she was struck, but she never felt like, it's very clear in her, in her letters, uh, taking to her street herself. She attended suffrage meetings, and I think her theosophist background mm. played a role there. She went and listened to Charlotte Perkins Gilman, the American writer, who was herself a, a theosophist. And her vision of the world as a theosophist uh, transcribed in her letter. You could read that in her letter, you know, the sort of um, uh, universal brotherhood of mankind, as the theosophists would uh, call their vision of the world. So she was a woman who, as a, a theosophist, sorry, um, her vision was beyond ra race and class and sex and, and caste and color. So she had that sort of... Um, awareness that um, women's rights and children's rights had to be fight, uh, fought for, but not in a militant way. 
Mm. And there's an and interesting division, isn't there, between the militant and the non-militant mm. suffragettes, certainly in the UK. But yeah. let's just backtrack a moment, Claire. How did the movement for women's votes arise in this country? Because mm. that's a different story to the it's UK. Very different. It's yeah, a very, very different. different story, isn't it? It's a very different story, and um, it, it, it's a, a story that I've been banging on about for a while now. I made a documentary for the ABC that first went to air in 2012 called Utopia Girls. Um, about the, the way that women won the vote in Australia. And one of the reasons that I, I wanted to do that was because um, I was, uh, had become aware as an historian that even though a lot of uh, um, Australian academics, uh, women's studies academics knew about this, that it, it wasn't actually more part of the popular imagination, particularly with young women. And I think that it's difficult uh, to understand. Um, uh, my particular motivation was was that it's really hard to know how to change the world if you haven't seen how it's been done in the past. And we take so much for granted about how seemingly easy things have changed. And in some ways, it, it did change easily in Australia because we didn't have to have those kinds of, um, you know, th the street brawling, really, that, yeah, that it was, happened. Yeah, it was such a different time and period. And, you know, the nation was being constructed. And so it, there was something a bit more natural, in fact, in, you know... It, in one way it was, it was more organic because yeah. it was this incredible um, dovetailing of feminism and federalism. So, mm. so feminism was a worldwide movement and suffragism was a worldwide movement, in, but in particular in Australia, it came into being at a time where there was, um, there was, there was a huge interest particularly in establishing the nation, in working out the grounds for what our constitution was going to look like um, and who was going to be included and not included in that. And, uh, and this had happened earlier at, at Eureka um, when the mass uprising for, well, mass movement for political enfranchisement for working men and women had been part of that movement. They had struggled for those rights, for those popular rights, for people who basically who didn't own property to be able to vote. And Australia did get those rights far in advance of Britain. But women didn't. There were people who were advocating for women's vote in the 1850s, but women were essentially thrown under the bus at that stage. At the, this next great nation-building moment at Federation, women say, well, we're not going to let that happen again. We are going to be counted this time. And there was a really interesting precedent that had already been set because South Australia had, had granted women not only the right to vote, but also the right to stand for parliament, and not only white women, but also indigenous women as well, that what happened when the, when the colonies were thrashing out how they were going to constitute this nation, South Australia, very much at the urging of South Australian women, but through the mouthpiece of South Australian men, because of course they were the only ones that were invited to the Constitutional Convention of 1897, although Catherine Helen Spence did run for that, the first woman in the world to run for elected office. Um, so these women pushed for the rights that South Australian women had to become the standard for the nation, and in fact held the other colonies to ransom and said that if any person loses rights through the process of federating, then South Australia would not join the federation. So effectively, they made women's suffrage the precondition of a federated Australia. And so when Australia did um, come into being and the constitution was written, and then the first act of parliament, is actually the second act, but the, the, the Franchise Act was written, 
women were given not only the right to stand for parliament, but also the right to, not only the right to vote, but the right to stand for parliament, becoming the first country in the world to do so. Unfortunately, at that time, indigenous people were disenfranchised. They were the ones thrown under the bus at this particular moment, and as we well know, it had been another 60 years before they were able to count in our constitution. So we had this really very particular kind of perfect storm of circumstances. Um, but it didn't just happen, it wasn't, it wasn't a gift. Women had been fighting and struggling and petitioning and, and sending delegations and writing letters and, 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 and canvassing door to door in every colony and um, up until that point for these rights. So, it's, it's an interesting, we didn't have the, the window breaking, we didn't have mm. the imprisonments and the force feeding and the things that in some ways get, you know, that are much better fodder for a Hollywood movie starring Meryl Streep. <laughs> but we did have women who fought tooth and nail for their rights. Mm. Yeah. And, and Beatrice, yeah. as you said a moment ago, Bessie is more of an observer, but yeah. nonetheless, the role of the Australian women who go to London because of what Claire's just described, becomes quite senior, doesn't it? They are women of some significance and some importance in this galvanising political struggle that's taken place in the UK. They are, so there's Muriel Matters, of course, and uh, Nelly Martel, and they all went there not to fight. I mean, this is what is really interesting. They went there because they were actresses or for you know, other reasons, but they were just caught up by what they saw. And probably the experience of them being citizens they were the living example of what mm. citizen, you know, female citizens mm. were. Yeah. Mm. But I would like to come back to what you mm. were saying about that whole thing about suffrage being a gift. Mm. Because the same thing was said in, in, in England, mm. you know, 1918 when the eight millions got the vote, oh, that was a reward, right, for the mm. war effort. I mean, the whole idea of being a gift and a reward, do we speak about that for the guys? No. <laughs> and also, I mean, in 1918, all the young, you know, young working-class women who had worked in the ammunition factories, none of them could vote. So the whole idea, because of the property qualification and mm. all sort of things, so the whole idea of you know, women's suffrage could, you know, being a gift or a, a reward is shocking in itself, but also because it just doesn't correspond to reality. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and the role that the Australian women play, I think, is they, they're these powerful women from a free nation. They, they yeah, sort of exactly. appear with yeah. great yeah. strength and, and very charismatically mm. too. Well, they were orators. Mm. I mean, Muriel Matters, she's the one who created these caravan tours. And she, you know, went with horses and carts all over the country. And Nelly Martel, before she fell out with a pankers, which was not unusual to fell out with a pankers, <laughs> yeah, she was a great orator. You'll see in the, uh, in the, in the gallery, she's everywhere. Mm -hmm. on the podium, on platforms with a pancreas. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and if you have already seen the exhibition, you know that a lot of this material is the most magical stuff in terms of how the suffragettes in the UK manage the media. There's this wonderful... Oh, they're amazing. The, the fact, tell us the story of the Human women, letters. Who, the women yeah. who posted okay, themselves. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> they, you know, it was the time of you know, publicity was being created. I mean, in the States, for instance, were very big. But here, they realised that they could pose themselves. So two women... Uh, carrying a letter, went to um, 10 Downing Street with a postman, got along with them, and carrying this message to the Prime Minister, you know, human letters being delivered. And of course, Asquith said, well, no, you can't be delivered. Return to sender, you dead letters. <laughs> so, and of course, this made the headlines. 
fantastic. So it's a front page. It's a yeah, fabulous it's a that. Big it's front amazing. page on the tabloids yeah. of the day. Exactly. Women, human letters post themselves to Prime Minister. Yeah. And they knew <laughs> that, you know, any kind of publicity was good publicity for and them. Nobody and, something knew, they got. and nobody knew how to garner publicity better than Muriel Matters. I mean, she, <laughs> she really was the one who, uh, and, the, and, the, and the suffrage movement in Britain acknowledged this, yeah. that she was the one who, um, who absolutely wiped the floor with the newspaper's desire for publicity. Um, and the first stunt that she pulled off was to chain herself to the grill in Parliament House um, at, at Westminster because women had to um, sit up in a gallery very high above the rest, um, above the chamber. Um, and they had these panels. So not only were they physically separated, um, but then there was, there was like a, a trellis, this, this ironwork trellis between them. So their vision was impaired, um, but the politician's vision of them was impaired also. And so she came up with this ingenious plan to hide a chain um, under her coats, and, uh, and she padlocked herself to the, to the grill. <laughs> And, and then started, and then not only did that, but then started speechifying, then started shouting out. So she's also um, credited with being the first woman to ever speak in British Parliament. Um, but she very much, but she very much saw herself as an Australian. And this is one of the things that I find very interesting, is that, is that she, these women did, Nellie Martel did as well, and Dora Montefiore, and then later Vida said, that as Australian women, who could vote in their own country, but they came to Britain and they lost those rights. Mm. They, they felt that it was an insult, that they needed to be treated with more respect. So they had this sense that they were providing a, a role models for the British suffrage movement, that they were providing expertise about how to organise and strategise. Uh, they were providing a kind of inspiration. But they had a real sense uh, that they were... And, and they, they also wrote back to to um, Australia saying you, more Australian women needed to provide the sort of support that they were in order to come to the aid and help their less fortunate British sisters. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the terminology. Just, so just they felt that. a great sense of responsibility. Mm. Mm. And, and you mentioned Dora Meeson's banner a moment ago, yeah. which is up in Parliament House, although it's slightly tucked away. And that tells an interesting story both, I mean, it was the hit of the parade in 1911, but its subsequent history has some really interesting mm. metaphors for the story of the women's suffrage mm. movement. Talk to us about that. <clears throat> so, so the banner seems to have been, after 19, the, its big outing in 1911, uh, it was in use for a few other smaller events afterwards um, because, you know, thing, things really, excuse my language, young people, though, things really went to shit after 1911. Um, that's, particularly in 1913, that's when Emily Wilding Davidson threw herself in front of the horse and was killed. That's when the really militant actions, the very violent yeah, window that's breaking. that's when was there. And that's yeah. when Bessie was there. When things really got much uglier than anybody expected they ever would in, in 1911. And so this kind of, th th this great um, moment of almost celebration and pageantry of 1911 starts to wane. And then, of course, there is the war and it all, and it all stops. So, but the banner ends up 
like a lot of the material um, that was produced by the, the suffragettes. Um, as Beatrice said, they were incredible propagandists and, and they produced art and design, and you'll see it in the exhibition, crockery, um, uh, jewellery. They really were able to harness the power of art. And a lot of that material, those, those, and they also used it for commercial purposes, they sold it. This is how they, they raised funds for themselves. Um, they sold postcards, pictures of Nellie Martell, pictures of, of, uh, of these leaders um, were, were sold as penny postcards. And a lot of this material um, ended up um, in a collection that ended up being called um, the Fawcett Library. It was a collection of women's suffrage um, memorabilia. And one day, this banner was discovered, um, in fact, by uh, Dale Spender, um, a very you know, influential, many of you will know her work, Australian feminist, who was at the time working in London. And it, it came to her attention that the, there was this banner that was just kind of folded up on, on top of a, of a cupboard. And um, she realised what it was and, um, and brought it to the attention of the library. They didn't have room for it. Um, they, it was too big to do anything with because this banner was actually exceptionally larger than any of the other ones. That hundreds and hundreds of them were made for these processions. But her banner was exceptionally large and it was also in, totally unique in that it was painted. All of the other ones were embroidered or sewn or crocheted, um, but they were, were sewn, essentially, um, and hers was painted. She was, a, she was a, an, an oil painter herself, living in Chelsea as part of the Australian artist colony with the Lindsays and, um, and Tom Roberts and all that mob. And um, so Dale Spender organ organised for the banner to be brought by um, back to Australia. So this we're talking here, in, she discovered in 1987, 1988 was the Bicentennial. So the Bicentennial Authority ended up purchasing the banner and bringing it back to Australia. Well, not back, because it was actually painted in London, but bringing it to Australia for the first time and, and um, Bob Hawke handed it over to... Um, Margaret Reynolds. To, um, mm -hmm. And Margaret Reynolds was involved in this as, um, as a gift to at the time, they said, as a gift to the women of Australia. Um, I would like to think it was a gift to the people of Australia, <laughs> um, as a gift to the women of Australia. So it had languished. And that's what you're bringing up here, the sort of symbolism of it, was that here was an event. It was, it was the, the pinnacle. It was the, the, the banner that kind of symbolised this movement that was reported all around the world. And this banner was actually commented on all the reportage all around the world. And then it just kind of ended up in the back of a cupboard somewhere, much like our memory that any of this little mm. episode had ever happened. Mm. <laughs> Beatrice, yeah. uh, the collection in the exhibition, yeah. which, is, which is Bessie's collection, has had sort of a more fortunate fate, but it was a little bit checkered along the way. Um, she was a passionate, lifelong supporter of women's votes. It became the yeah. great cause of her life. Yeah. But she had plans for a museum. That never quite eventuated either, did it? No, and yet this no. is so historically rich. What happened? Except, well, you know, she started collecting in 1913 when she was in England, then came back here and... I mean, the collection lasted until she died, basically, and what, what happened? There was, um, in England, something called the Suffragette Fellowship that was created in the 1920s. And they, it was mostly an association of former prisoners, suffragette, no suffragists were allowed in. 
And she was... You had yeah, to have been to prison and be, you know... Exactly, you had, had to have been in prison <laughs> yeah, to be part of the Suffragette mm. Fellowship. And I have the feeling that what Bessie wanted to create was something a bit similar. Have a collection here in Australia, in fact. So she collected all that, was in touch with women um, in that Suffragette Fellowship, and that's how she got the medal, the, um, yeah, the hunger strike medal. A woman, who, South Australian, who was born in South Australia, migrated with her family when she was a baby in London. And it is because of her connection with Australia that she kept, that she wanted Bessie to have uh, the medal. So that's how she managed to get all that, because she was a very dedicated collector. So the story about the museum, she was a Perth um, woman, and her idea was to create a museum for... She called it the Hall of Fame, I think, in Perth, that would, that would exhibit all her material, and it never happened. So then she started exploring having a Hall of Fame, a pioneer hall, in Canberra. And there was a lot of discussion, exchanges with MPs, with Curtin, Prime Ministers, and it's a long story, but eventually she was allotted not, yeah, two blocks of land to build a women's institute in mm. the first place, and then a hall of fame. But nothing happened. Mm. And it's very poignant when you read her letters. I mean, she was not somebody, she was a very reserved person. So she's not talking very explicitly about her disappointment or her sadness. But if you join the dots and read through the line, you can really feel how disappointed she was. So she ended up being in touch with Harold White, who was the chief libra librarian here at the time. And after discussion, she bequeathed her whole collection to the library. And she made it very clear that she wanted the collection to be used for education and make sure that young women would have access mm. to that. And the other thing also, she wanted the collection to be exhibited next to some of Vida Goldstein material. So, I mean, when we were, when I was curating, getting ready for the exhibition, there was that sense of things coming full circle, in fact, doing what she always wanted mm. things um, to be done. And, and that's one of the wonderful things we're yeah. doing here. We are remembering enormously important things that have, in a sense, drifted out of our collective national memory. And I suppose my, my last question, Claire, is why? Why did we forget this? I mean, is it... Is it Gallipoli? Is it all the sort of the, the myth-making about the nation born in blood and sacrifice that, that sort of gets in the way, mm. not just of this story about suffrage, but it's also the story of federation? And I said to you just the other day on the phone, you know, David Heaton, our friend in Canberra, says so often the birth of the nation happens at federation with, after years of intense, mm. fervent, peaceful mm. discussion. Yeah, that's right. Uh, is that what happened to, to, to suffrage as well? Well, that's exactly what I argue, Genevieve, that, that Gallipoli was the death of the nation. It was the death of the nation we were becoming. Mm. And I say that with no disrespect to the soldiers who fought in the war or the people um, who have an enormous amount of investment, um, emotional investment in, in um, their own family history um, of, of veterans and the sacrifice that they made. But... The fact is, Australia was born as a nation at Federation. And that argument that we hear that Australia proved itself on the world stage at Gallipoli, and that's why we can call this a birth of the nation moment, and that our nation was born in blood, and that uh, this is um, a, a military narrative of national genesis and generation. That idea is actually doesn't stand up to any evidence base. 
Australia had proved itself on the world stage already, and it had proved itself by being, as I said at the beginning, it had proved itself by being the democratic pacemaker of the world. Everybody knew that. That's how it was reported in all of the newspapers. That's why the British women wanted Australian women to come over and be leaders of their movement there. Because Australian women had what every other woman in the Western world and in many other countries as well was also fighting for. So Vida Goldstein had gone to, to America in 1902. As far as I can um, see from my research, she's the first person to be invited to the Oval Office to meet an American president. President Roosevelt invited her in because he said he wanted to see what one of these enfranchised women looked like. <laughs> like possibly they'd grown a second head. But I mean, that, that was the kind of propaganda that the anti-suffragists were saying, that if you gave women the vote, I mean, it's very, you know, it's been very interesting watching the marriage equality uh, um, debates play out because almost to a letter the same arguments that were used against suffrage about against women getting the vote it would be the end of the family it would be end, end of marriage as we knew it no women would want to have babies women would be unsexed was actually the word that was used so that's why we wanted to see what one looked like whether she was manly or not because that was the argument that they would lose their femininity and so Australia and then President Roosevelt said to her you're very interesting down there on, in Australia. I've got my eye on you down there. I'd like to know when, since an American president has thought that. <laughs> and and everything, that ha everything that happened in Australian political life, that it, when, even when Victoria got the vote in 1908, it was reported in the American press, because Australia was the first, uh, Victoria was the first colony to start, where women started organising for the vote, and in fact the last state that got it for a, a, a whole lot of reasons, mostly to do with the entrenched nature of male privilege in the upper house. Um, but, <laughs> so I really do believe that Australia was not born in blood. Australia was born in hope and in peace, uh, with a sense of what Vita Goldstein said, that we, that, our, that we were the only constitution where justice was enshrined, we were the only nation where justice was enshrined in the constitution. Now, she didn't obviously fully get that right. She was a woman of her time, and she didn't see injustice to, indi justice to Indigenous people as being part of the equation. Um, and, you know, that's something that we do have to grapple with um, when we also want to hero-worship these women, as I do believe they should be, for being the um, incredible, radical, progressive fighters that they were, who, who are the ones who, and we like to use bandy this language around, who fought for our freedom. I mean, they really did fight for our freedom. And, uh, and at great personal cost and with enormous levels of sacrifice and with a great sense of obligation and duty. So I think that Gallipoli, the war mythology, the sense of our, our nationhood as being born in blood did overtake the narrative. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it has been very hard to win that back. So hard that, and I, I don't know how many Canberrans are aware of this, but in 2000, and, in, sorry, in yeah, 2002, which was the centenary of Australian women getting the vote, there was going to be a very big and flamboyant monument to this built. Do you know about that? That was going to sit in between 
um, the two parliament houses and there was a whole design competition. I found this in the archives. I didn't know that this existed. And it was going to be a huge thing that you would be able to stand and when you did that incredible look down um, from um, New Parliament House to Old Parliament House to the War Memorial, it would stand there flourishing. It was like a big um, flame. Um, and um, Amanda Vanstone was backing it um, at the time. And then the whole thing was just shelved and sidelined. And, um, and now there's a tiny little plaque in the, in the rose garden behind Old Parliament House that kind of says, good on you chicks, we did a good job. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, you know, when you compare that to the war monuments, mm. to um, how much money has been spent over the last 20 years instilling Anzac as being part of our national story through education, through funded trips to Gallipoli, you know, where are the funded trips to London to see where these women who walked the world stage in the eye and in the gaze of the world and who were, um, had been really very much in the public eye and the world knew what Australia was about. That, that memory is not set in stone in the same way. Mm, it's an extraordinary reflection, isn't it, to think of how central the role of the Australian War Memorial is what a significant part that is of our national story and the public imagination of all of us. And yet here, we've got a small exhibition in the National Library of carefully tended material that's a recollection, a part of, of this extraordinary story about Australian women and the power they wielded internationally. It's been a fabulous conversation. Uh, Claire, we look very much forward to, to your forthcoming book, To Daughters of Freedom. Beatrice, Exhibition is so interesting, so beautifully curated, and it Thank gives you. us such a fascinating insight into Bessie Rishbeef, who, who gave her, her very much the rest of her life to yeah. this cause. And I know that you're going to answer some questions a little yeah. later on in the exhibition, but would you please thank Dr. Beatrice Bijon and Dr. Claire Wright. And thank you so much, um, Beatrice, Claire and Genevieve for that entertaining and informative discussion and, among other things, roll on Federation Day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we can all appreciate now the efforts of the amazing uh, women of this movement and um, despite the gender inequities that still are undoubtedly present in uh, today's society, recognise that we are so fortunate to be living in an era and a country where there is no question about a woman's right to vote. And uh, I guess that I'm sure that everybody on the stage here would also say, if you, you know a young woman and she has not enrolled to vote, make her. <laughs> now, I'm sure that many of you will have questions that you'd like to ask Beatrice and Claire, but I ask you to save those questions for the moment. Um, Beatrice will be available in the Treasures Gallery after dessert to show you the exhibition and to answer any of your questions. And Claire's also happy to answer questions um, and will stay in the foyer area after dessert. Now, I hope you've all really enjoyed your evening so far in company with some wonderful conversation from our speakers and your fellow guests. I'd now like to introduce uh, Senator Claire Moore to offer a vote of thanks. Senator Moore has been a senator for Queensland since 2001. She was a founding member of Emily's List and the Australian Workers Heritage Centre 
and we are absolutely delighted that she's been a most valued member of the Council of the National Library of Australia since November 2016. So. Thank you so much and of course I begin in sharing the acknowledgement of the traditional owners and paying my respect to Elders of all cultures in terms of what they've made for our society and tonight unashamedly the women, the women of generations that have gone before us. The gig says that I'm here to make a vote of thanks to the suffragettes, suffragists and that is a fabulous opportunity. Uh, in terms of, this has been my life for many years, it is my overwhelming passion to learn about the women who went before us and how they fought for our rights and the opportunity to vote. And so I am tingling at the moment about this display and also this fabulous um, talk that we've had this evening. I mean, Ruth, my good friend Ruth Weber was sitting there and she could feel me bouncing at the table <laughs> because so many of the stories were things that we've talked about. Uh, one of the things that we need to know, and Francis, I cannot go any further without acknowledging you. Um, you have been with me for so many years and keeping these wonderful stories alive, it is just so incredibly important. And we've heard that, that our job is to make sure that this history is never lost. And it's something that we who care, it is our job to ensure that women in particular, but our whole community know about the struggle to achieve our democratic rights. And one of the things that drives me is this mythology around that somehow it was graciously granted to women, that we waited patiently, we um, looked after it, we cooked and sewed and took minutes, and then suddenly they said, there they are, give them the vote. Um, but we know, we've heard a little bit this evening about how that is absolutely not true. Um, I am so thrilled that we've got to see some of the women who were part of this process. Unfortunately, one of the sadnesses is we have lost so much of this history. We have lost so much of the information about it. My own work in Queensland is that so many of the papers were destroyed, that the women who fought in these areas, their meetings were lost. We just do not have these records. So to be blessed now with this extraordinary display, the work that Bessie gathered and that you have done so beautifully to bring together this evening to put before us is exciting and it's valuable. I want to know what these Sheilas did. I want to know how they thought. I want to know all the different personalities. I know how they fought. We know about all the different groups that were there. They were not a unified force. They were women who actually saw a need and actually struggled together. So thank you so much, suffragettes and suffragists. Um, I'm proud that that banner is back in Australia. Um, I am fortunate enough to have worked very much with Dale and with Margaret Reynolds, who both say that receiving that, that particular banner was an important part in their lives, and those women have fought so hard to keep it alive. I, I don't think it's actually hidden in Parliament. I think it's in a really important place in Parliament House. I walk to and from every meeting I attend past that banner. There's a little bit of my fingerprint on the frame and I touch it as I walk to my meetings. And every time I have women coming to visit me in Parliament, they get to visit the banner. And I'm going to end by telling the story of some Myanmar women parliamentarians who came to visit us in our Parliament House last year to talk about their struggle and also their futures as being parliamentarians in the most confronting 
um, parliament that I've ever seen. Uh, and I took those women to that particular banner and I explained the story. And I talked about 1911 and I talked about the fact that our Prime Minister's partner was actually marching in that band. And I sent them down to see the hat in the Museum of Modern Democracy. I want that hat. Um, but I sent them down to see it. And you should have seen the way they responded. They were listening, they were laughing, and they shared our history. So part of this evening is to learn more and to keep the struggle alive because it needs to continue. So thank you, suffragettes and suffragists. Thanks very much, Claire. And I now have this image of a part of the frame becoming shiny with the years as there is one woman after another. So that's, that's lovely. Well, look, that brings us to the end of uh, a dinner, almost. You've got dessert, but um, uh, not the end of the evening. So um, uh, after dessert, I'll ask you to join Beatrice uh, in the Treasures Gallery to view our Deeds Not Words. But for now, I think it is time for sweeter things. And have your dessert, and I'll come back and talk to you again in a moment. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs>